Welcome to Shakespeare and How, Episode 8, Henry VI, Part 3. I'm Michael. I'm Greg. And I'm Sophie. And we are continuing our trend of having plays that at least one of the crew absolutely detest, while the rest of us actually quite enjoy them. That is, I feel, the creative juice of this podcast. This is the back and forth that will create what is called chemistry. So, without further ado, I've tantalized you too much. Greg, why don't you explain your relationship to this play? Uh, Absolutely no relationship until I read slash listened to it over this weekend, or as of today. yeah, it was brand new to me. Oh, I'm certain to have read it at some point, but it it felt absolutely brand new to me. I did not remember anything. Um, yeah, not not a single line was something of, oh, yeah, I remember that. So it was fresh. It was good. But, Sophie, your relationship to this play, and I get a sense I know your only early relationship to this play... <laughs> Yeah, the only early relationship to this play is the same as the one before. Um, Well, actually, it's more than the one before just because now I've read the one before. So there's that precedence. Um, And then, you know, the Audacity version that is available has uh, David Tennant. But uh, I I didn't know that David Tennant had done a Henry yeah, no, he, that's, uh, this is the in the Audacity, Henry the Sixth, Part Three, Archangel Shakespeare, um, narrated by David, David Tennant, Kelly Hunter, Clive Merrison, Stephen Boxer, John Bowe, David Troughton. I know none of those people, except literally the first name. I look forward um, to hearing how mad he did it, because he played a very, a very stable Hamlet when I saw his Hamlet, so. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's basically my only relationship with this play. The fact that I've read part two and I know the person, well, I don't know the person. I just, you know what I mean? David Tennant exists in my brain as other people. And who doesn't like hearing his voice? His voice is pretty great. It is unfortunate we can't hear more in his original accent. (laughs) You can in DuckTales, where he plays Scrooge McDuck. Oh, yeah. I should get round to that. But anyway, on to my relationship with the Henry VI plays. As someone who is interested in Shakespeare, I have heard of the Henry VI plays, and I vaguely hear my more in-depth relationship to this play is the Requiem for the Rose King manga. (laughs) That manga, inexplicably based on Shakespeare's Henry VI plays and Richard III. Inexplicably, that was the one that a Japanese manga creator thought would be a good starting point to make into a manga. To be honest, I'd totally forgotten about that. It is. I will say that it is actually... I am reading these like in parallel. I am reading the Henry the Sixth plays over here and reading the 
Japanese manga over here, and I am very much seeing where the author just took some lines from Shakespeare and plopped them in, you know, translating to Japanese. I will say that reading both at once is sort of helping me understand the sort of many characters, the back and forth, because they say that if you want to learn something, get it from multiple sources at once. And that will, the repetition will get it lodged in your brain. And reading it once in a Renaissance play form and reading it another time with anime pretty boys, this is definitely two different forms that are really solidifying this information in my head. And maybe that's where you're, you're getting your, your roadblock, Greg. Maybe if you'd read the anime pretty boy version, you'd like this more. <laughs> mm, I mean, I'm not sure that's the problem, but yeah. I think well, that definitely helps, though. Yeah. Um, honestly, I, I think one thing that might have helped is if I went off and saw a saw a version of this as the high-paced battle film, like Steven Spielberg doing um, Saving Private Ryan. I want to see the Saving Private Ryan version of Henry VI Part Three. Um, but, you know, the, the other thing is it, it wasn't done much anyway because, you know, if you didn't do it with big fight scenes, it, it doesn't have much. It has a lot of people talking about we're going into fighting and that would be it. <laughs> yeah, some of these scenes were very short. It yeah. does go into the sort of chaos well, and the uncertainty surrounding the fighting in war, the not quite knowing who is on the upper foot at any yeah. given time. And of course... Then we get the fun scene I'll leave till later that I absolutely hate in one of the quiet moments between fights. Ah, <laughs> oh, oh, no. when the child is killed. The dad and the child, yep. Oh, oh I was okay. thinking of a different one with a child. Oh, no, I was, I, I was thinking of the son I and did, the father. I will be honest, that is one of my favourite parts of this. Oh, now, really? Yeah, again, I, I was about to my, say, me too. I, quite en- I was about to say, wait, is that the scene that I quite like? Maybe I maybe like not so much the dad and um father dad and um son part, but definitely like Henry's part within that scene. I absolutely adored, and I'm really sad that we might have to fight over that, Greg. Oh, we might have to okay. fight over that, Greg. That's okay. That that'll be the fun one then. But once more, this is we. It, you know, as they say, early installment weirdness, as they say on TV tropes. It took us a while before we found this specific angle to take with these plays where Greg despises them and me and Sophie try to defend them. This is what this podcast will be. Until we get to the decent plays at least, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm sure I'll hate exactly what you like. But Yes, probably. <laughs> probably, actually. Although I don't think this is necessarily a bad play. No, there, there are parts in this that are good. Um, as a play, I'm not a huge fan, but there are parts in this that are good. Now, just entirely unironically, I will say that this is the first play where I thought, oh, Shakespeare's actually quite good at doing this. Uh, this is the... Uh, I, 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 when I read these Henry VI plays, I am just shocked that they aren't put on more. I'm shocked that people don't uh, do them more. I find these to be, you know, very well-made plays. And, you know, the, we've, we've done Taming of the Shrew. And I've made it quite clear that I think the only reason why that play has any level of uh, staying power is only because it is uh, notorious. 
that I can't believe that play is still popular while these Henry VI plays have fallen out of favour. I mean, he does get better at doing farces by the time he's doing comedy of errors, so there's that to look forward to. As I uh, think this is a phrase I've used before on this, it's not funny, it's comedy. That's the comedy of errors. It's not funny, it's comedy. You can tell it's well-written, you will never laugh, but you can tell it's well-written. How about we start the play? No, but no, no, not. We don't get to the play yet, Greg. Remember, we are still gesturing towards the idea that biography matters. This is theoretically meant to be a podcast where we go to the works of William Shakespeare in chronological order. We have already broken that quite a few number of times. We have already done Venus and Adonis, which happens after this play. So Venus and Adonis was written during the plague years. This happens, this play, Henry VI, the Henry VI plays are written before. They are written before the plague years. So this is the first brief flowering of Shakespeare's career where he is famous on the stage. Or more accurately, his plays are famous on the stage. He is not named. He is merely the person who produces the plays. And I want to correct something I said in a previous uh, episode. I am correcting this because I just listened to the episode because it was released. We're going to have a lot of this where I hear something and correct it five months later because that is the delay time between these episodes, quite irritatingly. I said, I seem to contradict myself, I said that copyright did not exist, but also that certain printers had the rights to certain books. This is not a contradiction. The printers had the rights to print certain books. The writers did not. The playhouses did not. Uh, the, the playhouses could just put on any script by anyone else. The writers didn't really have rights to their characters, but the printers, the printers had rights to their books because of the Stationers Guild or something like that. And once again, I've mentioned this before, that Shakespeare is quite irritating as a famous literary figure because he is a very boring human being, a very boring life. I was reading one biography, one by Ackroyd, and basically the idea is that Shakespeare was comfortably well off. He was sending money away back home to his family in Stratford, and they were comfortably well off. His father was getting into a lot of legal fights for quite large sums of money, so that implies that his father was comfortably well off. A comfortably middle-class guy from a comfortably middle-class family who was at the start of a comfortably middle-class career. That is Shakespeare. It's not like Christopher Marlowe, who we just did, who was a spy. It's not like Ben Jonson, who we may do, who was a religious, um, heterodox, religious sort of guy, a guy who fought in European wars. No, Shakespeare, boring, boring, boring. Henry VI, Part 3, Act 1. The Yorkists. So we ended the previous play Henry VI, Part Two, with the War of the Roses starting, the Yorkists moving against the Lancasters, the Duke of York moving against King Henry. Now, the Yorkists are strong in military, and they confront Henry, basically saying that our claim to the throne is stronger, and we also have you know, fighting might to back it up. We have a proper claim to this throne. And we also begin with a quite a dark way of showing how powerful they are, with the Yorkists just boasting of how victorious they are, each of them saying, I, I knocked down this guy, I knocked down this guy, and Richard III, and, well, the 
future Richard III. Richard, York's son, just says, and look what I've done. And he pulls out a severed head and throws it on the ground. Now that is, that is quite a shocking way to begin this. Uh, what do we think of this opening scene? I think it would be very popular among modern movie makers and storytellers who insist on everything being in media reus, start where the action is kind of thing. Um, I liked it personally, but I, I, I think more to the point is that, yeah, this is very much what a lot of people would be very happy with today. I thought it worked especially well in that it catches you up on the story pretty quickly. Yeah, this one definitely had the um, previously on Henry the Sixth yeah. um, vibes, especially later. Um, and the the bloodthirsty the, 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 the bloodthirstiness of the usurpers um, really, I won't go so far as to say foreshadow, but definitely sets the tone for the rest of the play because previously in Henry the sixth part two, I described it as so exhaustingly tired and sad, while this one is just so exhaustingly angry. And that makes sense considering, oh, uh, you know, we have a couple of couple of sons and a couple of dads having their their heads lopped off and thrown all over walls and parliament house floors and all that jazz. So like it Very makes sense. Eye for an eye. Yeah, it's very eye for an eye. So um, it is an incredibly back and forth kind of thing. It does feel like a season of television where at the end of every episode, there needs to be some massive twist going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, such that there doesn't seem to be any through line. This is in my introduction. They're saying that people throughout the ages have criticized this play for seeming to lack any clear through line. It's just a chaos of back and forth. Unfortunately, it seems like the reality was a chaos back and forth as well, which didn't yes. help. Which, it, which the, the introduction also says, ah, but Shakespeare was doing that intentionally. He, the history was chaotic, therefore the play is chaotic. I think it, it is surprising that we, he, Shakespeare chooses to include this um, piece of the history in the whole, oh, we'll give you back the kingship, just once you're dead, we take over. I, I'm surprised Shakespeare wanted to include that in his story. <laughs> I'm surprised he included a part. Where, so, like this, we were talking about the violence at the beginning, but I do think that you know this opening scene does quite well set up one of the key themes of this, which is you know how much does legitimate authority, how much does legitimate right, actually have to do with being a king? And this does become quite complex when it's realised that how does Henry, how does Henry the Sixth, justify his place on the throne? He justifies his place on the throne because his father was king and his grandfather was king, Henry IV. And how did Henry IV become king? By violently overthrowing the king. So we already have this, well, who's in the right? Who has legitimate authority? Well, fundamentally, does that seem to matter? And, you know, you, you said, Greg, you were shocked at a certain line. I would say that I am shocked by another line where Henry actually says, I know not what to say, my title's weak. Now, that is quite a line to bring up to say for the king to say, my title's weak. Yeah, but so, so is his character. So it's no surprise to me that 
Henry himself. Even even at times, Henry the self Henry himself doesn't seem to know why he's fighting so hard to remain king. It seems to be everyone else convincing him, no, you should be king. It does I feel seem, like it does if, if he was without his wife and he was without some of his other supporters, Henry would have happily gone off to Scotland and stayed there. And later on in the play, I think he almost exactly does that. He comes to that, essentially, that, that agreement later on. Exactly the opposite of what's happening in this scene, where he's, essentially what happens is that Henry sees that there are lots of men with swords in his throne room. He sees that a civil war is probably going to kill a lot of people. And so York and Henry come to a compromise where Henry shall be king until he dies. And then when he dies, either York or York's children will become king and their line will take over. As can be expected, with most compromises, the compromise pleases no one. I mean, this is, uh, what do we think of Henry uh, or York making this kind of compromise? Were they right to at all assume that this would work out? I thought it was kind of like out of, out of the rest of the character of York, that York would even allow this compromise in the first place. Really? Yeah, it, it, it surprised me that York would allow this compromise. Um, but I mean, he is York very easily is, he is, in the next scene. He is very easily convinced by his sons to break the compromise. Yeah, and York seems very contradictory compared to like Henry's characters down pat to me, um, and, and most of the characters don't do anything unexpected. But York often does things where I'm like. Oh really? You're going to go that direction? So, and, and this was one of the times. Thinking back on the entire play, yeah, I, I'm surprised that he so easily gives it up in the first place. Okay, I mean, I suppose. Hmm, go on, Sophie. Well, I mean, if you put it that way, for me, it's. Uh... For me, I think Richard Plantagenet slash York. Wait, wait, which one's York again? I'm losing my mind. York is Edward the Edward the Fourth. No, no Edward the Fourth is his son. Uh, York is Richard. Uh, uh, Richard of let's just say Richard of York. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah, um, Richard, Richard of York. York. So it makes sense to me in. In that he's like, all right, cool. In because Henry is no threat to him. Henry is, you know, just the weak, um, dis- indecisive, blubbering king. So for Richard, going, you know what? I won't do a, I won't do a regicide. If you're going to give me the throne anyway, I will allow it. No, no, Hen- Henry's the weak one, and he's lost the throne. Yeah, no. Um, shit, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. That's what I meant. So I'm saying Richard agreeing to the compromise, saying, "Yeah, Henry, you can keep the throne until you die, and then yeah, I'll take I just it don't for myself." Why he's willing to wait. Uh, the second scene makes complete sense to me when they convince him immediately. Why wait? Um, I don't understand why it didn't occur to him in the first place. Because Henry is no threat. Um, he's it just you be, know. It could be merely that. You know, he doesn't want a war, essentially. Temporarily, cooler heads prevail, and he says, 
okay, get what I want, and I don't need to kill any of, I don't need to get any of my men killed. Perhaps that's all it is. Yeah, and also like Lord Clifford, uh, Warwick, um, Westmoreland, Clifford, all all these other people going, dude, Henry, how dare you, your son? And Henry's like, what, 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 what? Like, it is entirely possible that, um, at least on stage, Richard saw everybody else's expressions just drop at Henry's incredibly cowardly choice slash compromise and thought I mean, to do myself, you think it's actually cowardly i mean it, i do uh, not but yes, it, it does else seem really, to be him a pacifist move yeah it, it is very much a pacifist move which is you know frowned upon clearly by everybody else going you know you faint-hearted degenerate king in whose cold blood no spark of honor bides it's like mm. so clearly um everyone else's expression dropped maybe richard thought if I say yes, this reign is going to fall apart anyway. He will lose his support. Cool. I'll yeah, take he does, it. He does have the line about, you're getting old anyway, so you might as well have it for the end. Yeah. Um, so, and it sort of also makes sense that later he goes, you know what, I changed my mind. I will, I will take it because his reign is going to fall very quickly, very soon anyway. Why Why not speed it up? So at least written down, it kind of feels a little flip-floppy, but on stage, like between human beings that have expressions, I think this um, compromise is something Richard would have loved to have taken. And I suppose that before we get any comments saying that, you know, this is a history play, certain things do happen in history, I'd say criticisms we can make of the characters are not so much of the things they do, which are sort of things you cannot write your way around, given that to some extent they did do these things. It is more in crafting a kind of character that can conceivably do all of these seemingly contradictory things. Yeah. yeah. And in, in, other, in other places, the backflipping kind of works. It was just this this particular one I struggled with a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I think Sophie might be right that it, it would work a lot better if I'd seen a, some good directing of this scene. I, I, I can see that this scene definitely could be made to work. And we have... Margaret coming in. This is Margaret's origin story, where she <laughs> the compromise has happened, and she says, "Ah, wretched man!" She's talking to Henry. Would I had died a maid and never seen thee, never borne thee son, seeing thou hast proved so unnatural a father? Hath he deserved to lose his birthright thus? So once this is that very common topos that you get in lots of ancient historical um, documents. This idea of the noble woman who hates her husband but really wants her son to succeed. It is, we have it here saying, oh, I hate you, Henry, but my son, my son I had by you, I want him to be king. And because of this, she will don her armor and go to war. Do we like this? <laughs> I mean, it is, it is quite, she is, uh, throughout the play, they do talk about how both Margaret, later on in the play, some of the characters say that Margaret and her son, Prince Edward, 
that this woman and this child are standing up where the man, Henry VI, has failed, that they are doing the man's job because Henry VI is so effete and useless. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't mind her character. I, I don't know how much she's the beginning of this trope or... I mean, not the beginning of this trope. I mean, I'm, it is... I mean, actually, I was reading my introduction of this thing and of uh, the Oxford Henry VI Part Three, and they're saying that there was actually quite a... Uh, there was a regular stage history of warrior women, warrior women going to war on the English stage. So the audience who's watching this play, they wouldn't automatically think, oh, that's weird, a woman going to war. They would have loved it. Yes, it's just a... It is one of maybe they don't think women should go to war in real life, but they think, oh, it's uh, it's like those other things I've seen on the stage before. So it's not it doesn't automatically put them against them, put them against her. Like in a lot of ways, this is the only reason why she is queen. In what sense? It's to provide an heir to the kingdom, and if she's not providing an heir because that's not what's going to happen, then what is her role as queen? Her her role is to ensure that the line is passed on. Um, but yeah, I, I get what you mean about yeah the the, the mother or always cares about the son but not the husband. Uh, in this yeah. case, it works well. In this case, Shakespeare does that well. I think. Do you think he also? I'm on her side from the beginning. <laughs> Certainly, there's only one point where a modern audience might be a bit against her, but let's put that uh, later on. It has to do with child killing, as quite a lot of the ah, events yes. in this play has to do. <laughs> but let's leave that for later on. I will so, say for um, Queen Margaret's energy, um, in the previous play, she seemed like... She seemed arguably hysterical, like petulant, because, you know, she cheated supposedly cheated on Henry and was very sad about it. It's like, oh, I married a a, a wet blanket. I wear, I married a useless little lamb of a man-child. So that seemed that the very, the energy that I got from her at that time was quite, you know, petulant, angry, resentful, of course. And, um, and now having that, petulance removed because not only she has reason a good reason to be angry with henry she now has means to channel that anger into action i'm just like oh thank god oh thank god yeah it's like that thing where you know you have those leaders who aren't very good during peacetime they're sort of relatively worthless in peacetime but then the war comes and that's where they're good so I think Queen Margaret's sort of like that. During peacetime, she's just having affairs, being very angry at her station life, but no, there's a war on. I can do this. Yeah. And as we said, uh, moving on to the second scene, uh, Richard, he made that compromise, and very quickly, his sons tell him, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, is that, uh, like, uh, so Richard says, your right depends not on his, Henry's, life or death. So no, just take it. And York says, I took an oath that he should quietly reign. But his son, Edward, says, but for a kingdom, any oath may be broken. And this back and forth proves enough for York to say, you know what? 
Let's get up and let's go and take it again. But also, it, I think that his his hand is sort of pushed by the fact that Margaret is already besieging their castle. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like that. Oh, yes, let's get up and try and take it. Oh, by the way, you're about to be attacked by Margaret and 40,000 people. Yeah. And then we get this great sexist moment of, yeah, we've only got a few thousand, but we can still do it. But it's a woman leader. Don't worry about it. I mean, this does Finally feel like the sort of thing that would happen in a modern movie, where it's like, oh, it's just a woman. We have a couple thousand men, but it's just a woman. But then she does beat them. Yeah. <laughs> My notes on that page was just such fuckwits. Yeah. And even when, I mean, we're going to get to the point where, and, and I must admit, because I have read Wicking with the Rose King, my image of the scene where Margaret is essentially torturing a Ham York is very much tied up with this anime adaptation of it. Uh, again, I mean, in general with Shakespeare, sometimes it helps to have seen a production of these things that can get some images clear in your mind, ways to do it in a way that makes sense because, you know, people who put on these productions, they are trying to make it work, and so that can help you read it in a sympathetic way. And so the sympathetic way that I read was the Reckoning of the Rose King manga, and that did make this even more intense for me. So, again, I recommend to the listeners, read Reckoning of the Rose King. It is a very good manga series. Don't watch the anime, though, because that's <laughs> that's genuinely garbage. The anime adaptation does goes nowhere hard enough. Yes, here we go. We get... Is this uh, but where I sh- we get Clifford murdered? Yes. Yeah, no, uh, Clifford murdering. Ah, <laughs> uh, Clifford murdering. Yeah, Clifford murdering, yes. 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 So I think the Earl of Rutland, so this is another one of York's children. I think in real life, Rutland was meant to be 17, but here he seems to be about 12, which makes the fact that Clifford kills him um, quite a bit more uh, evil, essentially. So Clifford basically says, your father killed my father. In a sense, that makes us equals. Therefore, I'll kill you. And the boy is basically saying, that's stupid. I'm a child. Don't kill me. And this does, I think that the purpose of this is that it does throw quite a negative light on Margaret later on. Because, you know, Clifford, he kills this young boy and essentially he kills the young boy. He mops it in the boy's blood. He has a napkin. Oh, yeah. And then we get yes. And then we get to <laughs> Margaret's scene where he's, she has captured York. She has York tied up. She is essentially mocking York, saying, oh, you stupid man, you stupid man. Uh But what she does is almost in like a Senecan level of cruelty. Let me find the line. A Senecan level of cruelty. She says, look, York, I stay. Ah, so where is your darling, Rutland? Look, York, I stain this napkin with the blood that valiant Clifford with his rapier's point may issue from the bosom of the boy. And if thine eyes can water for his death, I give thee this to dry thy cheeks with all. Now that is, I mean, this is one moment where I think that even a modern audience who are like, you know, rah, rah, girl power, girl boss, go and kill those guys. I think even they would have to say, oh dear, oh, that's a bit far. I think Shakespeare has always done a really good job with the creativity of his revenge slash torture scenes. And I I think this has to be one of those great early examples of it. He, and in this way, he has lie, I absolutely loved her. I absolutely <laughs> loved her. Oh, yes, was doing this. the crown for his head. 
while Richard Plantagenet here in the original is is a bit of a dick. Um, he throws heads, he lets his sons and um, people throw heads around um, and he does break his oath because he was like, yeah, you know what? I will. Instead of a, if I must um, in the adaptation. So. And I think, uh, yes. So, and he is punished. Essentially he gets his head knocked on, like his head is cut off and he's like mounted on a pike above his own city. Now that is, that is petty. So York shall look over York. That is a brilliant killer line. That's a James Bond one-liner. Oh. Yeah. Act two. We begin with Edward and Richard in that unhappy moment between knowing their fate of their father and realizing that he is dead. They, we do get the sort of fog of war, that part of war where you're not really quite sure what's happening or what's going on. And it doesn't do... help that they don't have, you know, what's the word? Uh, high-speed internet yeah, and telephones. So... They just have to wait on horseback. Yes, yes it is. Uh, yes, certainly. Uh and here, I mean, in this opening part, I do think we see... I mentioned before how the Richard we have here is not quite the Richard we have in Richard III. I think this may be sort of... Like, we have here a Richard who is, I might say, slightly more nuanced, has slightly more character traits than the more archetypal caricature villain of Richard III. Uh, for instance, he says, I cannot joy until I be resolved where our right valiant father has become. So our right valiant father, he says, so fled his enemies, my warlike father, methinks his prize enough to be his son. He has this very filial, has a lot of filial piety towards his own father, which when we think of this uh, selfish, out-for-himself kind of guy we get in Richard III, it's not what we think of, Richard. Uh, we do, do we think that we get a more nuanced, rounded picture of Richard in this play? I don't think so. I think this comes down to a fact that Richard cared about his father because he saw the same ambitions. His father wanted the crown and he wants the crown. I mean, there's a big difference in wanting it for someone else and wanting it for yourself. I've I've never had the impression, like I admit, I can't really recall if anything's mentioned in, say, Richard III, but is, is anything ever mentioned in other plays about Richard not liking his father? It, it would, it, it doesn't, Seem to I mean, be a contradiction of character for him to be a uh, ambitious character driven as much by family, like his direct lineage. <laughs> I mean, it's more, it's, I mean, what they call on TV tropes, flanderization, where one character aspect of him balloons out and becomes the main thing about him that I do feel that in Richard III, he's a bit more of a two-dimensional character where his other character traits go to the wayside to just be this sort of archetypal villain sort of character. And frankly, I think it helps that in this, we have a Richard who is not in too high a position of power and has a lot of allies that are old allies. 
I think I'm also here. Three glorious sons, each one a perfect sun, not separated with the racking clouds, but severed in a pale, clear, shining sky. See, see, they join, embrace, and seem to kiss as if they vowed some league inviolable. Now are they but one lamp, one light, one sun. Is this the heaven figures, some event? Um, and here you could potentially argue that Richard was talking about him and his brothers um, you know, combining yep. to create a new glorious era of Plantagenet slash York. Um, re- I was about to say Regency, but that's not the correct term. Um, monarchy. And, um, and yeah, they at least they start off, um, you know, a unit, a collected unit until, you know, much later in the play, he, we sort of get a really big, monologue from him it depends yes it does depend on how you want to present his character like depending on the actor you could have him developing into a kind of evil guy who i think he literally says oh love i I can't love so therefore i will dominate or something like that uh we could have a guy who develops from this guy who seems to have some care for his family into an evil guy who's willing to just kill someone in cold blood. Or you could have a presentation of him, as a lot of people do, a presentation of him where even when he says, oh, my father, I love my father, oh, Edward, we are going to stick together, that this is all of him just trying to show himself as being on side, even as he secretly plots for what's going to happen next. I think that would entirely depend on how much Shakespeare did a, about his thinking of these characters. Because, um, you know, was he really prepared to write Richard III um, before, while he was um, writing this particular Richard III? Um, I think he's a bit enough. Okay, he's not a bit character, but he is a side character enough that uh, he's allowed to develop into a villain, which he does. Um, Not that he wasn't a villain to begin with, but, you know, a lovable rogue versus an absolute tyrant, that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, no, I think Shakespeare decided, let's, let's let's let Richard develop. Yeah, I do. I do think that Shakespeare was not quite, and it almost feels like Shakespeare was thinking, "How can I treat this character? How can I present this character?" And he hadn't quite gotten the killer way that he eventually gets to in Richard III. And when I when I, I have said that he has slightly more nuance in this play, I will say that I I don't necessarily mean that he's a better or more artful character in this play. I just mean that slightly more dimensional, perhaps, maybe. That doesn't make him a better character. It makes him a different kind of character. Yeah, I can ah. go with that. Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm happy to accept that view. And now we have Warwick coming up to them, reporting his loss against Margaret's forces, and Richard pushes him to fight again. You know, Warwick says, uh, we had to tactically retreat. We we did we had to run away and Richard is you know moving him to act 
out again. And this is another part where I think I, you know, this is one of those lines by Richie that could be read as him being generally, genuinely respectful of someone else or him just being Machiavellianly trying to persuade someone to do what he wants. Where he says, "'Twas odds belike when valiant Warwick fled. Oft have I heard his praises in pursuit, but ne'er till now his scandal of retire." And Warwick says, "'Nor now my scandal, Richard, dost thou hear... Uh, nor now my scandal, Richard, dost thou hear, for thou shalt know the strong right hand of mine can pluck the diadem from Henry's head, yada, yada, yada. And Richard said, I know it well, Lord Warwick, blame me not. Tis love I bear thy glory as makes me speak. Now, again, you, you can read this in two entirely separate ways. One of them is Richard. He does genuinely respect this guy called Warwick. He's saying, I thought better of you. Why did you do that? The other way is viewing him as being just, you are... You should be helping us. Let me persuade you. Let me try to shame you into doing this as a Machiavellian sort of psyop thing. What do you think of this? Do you think Richard genuinely respects Warwick? I think so. Yeah, I, I read him as respecting Warwick at this point. Um, and I, I've always, I, I read Warwick throughout the entire play as someone that everyone respected as a person who's doing what he thinks is right. Um, and later- I, I, know, I know a lot of um, interpretations of this play is um, Warwick was the scheming bastard. Um, but I didn't read it as such. Yeah, yeah I think, have- um, sorry, I just wanted to add to the Warwick thing. Um, I, in Act 1, Scene 1, I specifically wrote down Warwick would be an interesting character to play because he does show some concern to Henry, um, and when he says, when and Henry, Henry replies, "Not for myself, Lord Warwick, but my son." So I was like, "Okay, you kind of want to depose Henry, but you're still showing him concern. Like, so how do you balance that as a character or a person?" And um, this whole universally respected for his martial prowess, for his diplomacy for his um, ambassadorial um, stature, it makes sense for Richard III to be, you know, going, dude, I respect you. I thought you were better than this. Like, what about all those legends that I've heard from you from court? And I think we will have, on Warwick's character, we'll definitely have more to say later on when he does, spoilers for the rest of this podcast and the play, uh, when later on Warwick does turn against the Yorkists. It will be interesting to see how we interpret that because, I mean, York is dead. The, the Richard Duke of York is dead. Uh, and, what, I mean, this is something to talk about later, frankly. Uh, but we'll get there. Okay, so Margaret and the Yorkists, they meet in battle, ready to fight, because Richard has just said to uh, Warwick, you know, go out there, let's all fight, let's go back into battle. So Margaret and the Yorkists, they come into the field and they claim battle. And Clifford, Clifford, Clifford chastises Henry for being a bad father to his own children. You know, to Prince Edward, you, you, left, your child, you left your child without his birthright. But I think also maybe this is an extension to him being a bad father of his people. Like, you're Henry, you're meant to be the king, you should be treating your, your people correctly. But... Uh, it's one of those things where a lot of people will, there's that thing where you'll find quotes by Shakespeare online. 
but they always take them out of context. They take them away from the characters who are saying them. When you see the characters who are saying them, they seem to be mean something quite different. Uh, so what do we think about the fact that Clifford, a guy who's just killed a child, is telling Henry to be a better father? Does this sort of make the argument that you should take care of your children a bit more? Does that make it seem a bit more hollow? All right, so I didn't really consider it as a chiding of take care of your children. I took it as a chiding of take care of your house, take care of your legacy. Um, thou being a king blessed with a goodly son, dost yield consent to disinherit him, which argued thee a most unloving father. Like, unreasonable creatures feed their young. Like, he's not going for, you know, he's a sweet boy. Um, he's talking about lineage and, um, you know, or even primal animals feed their young because, you know, they have legacy. They want to carry on more children. It's less about the child and more about the line and more about legacy. Yeah, yeah. Now, I I agree with Sophie on this. This this wasn't about something personal, and I think I think a lot of this has to a lot of the play has to be read very much as there's very few moments in this where I think anyone is actually personally deep in their heart affected, except for when we're talking about the literal killings of other people. Like, I think Clifford is a great example of someone who is personally affected and makes decisions based on personally being affected. I don't think Margaret or Warwick think that way. I mean, I think Margaret definitely thinks she's personally affected, at least via her son. That's why she's doing uh, it. I, 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 I disagree. I think a lot of it is she's affected as my as her role as queen. I would say that definitely her role as mother also comes into this. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree on that. I'm not sure the whole... I mean, her role as queen, she doesn't particularly like her husband, who's the king. The only reason why she is queen, I'd say that the only reason she seems to at all care about this is specifically because her son, who she she likes quite a lot, because, you know, her son, uh, I'd say that that is quite a... Like, I'd say that you need to have a bit more of an argument to say that it's not because she likes her son. No, I, I think it's... I don't think it matters who the son is, though, as a person. I think it's the concept of a son and a concept of an heir that matters. The person does not matter at any in any way to Margaret. The actual human being that is under the title her son or Prince Edward... <laughs> I remember correctly. Yeah, I think she cares about her son, like the way she grieves for him later when he dies, because of course they all die. Um, yes, but that's, really that's what I'm saying. And, and less in death, I think a lot of these statements are made politically rather than personally. I mean, until the you have actual death on the line. I mean, she is. I mean, uh, we're talking about how this is all very political. This is all about the line of it. But the language they do use, I mean, you have to quite argue against the language they're using. Where, I mean, so Margaret says, you are a most unloving father, most unnatural father. This is 
done in the language of family, of being a father. And also Clifford, he's not talking about lying. I mean, he, he does say even unreasonable features, creatures feed their young. And though no man's face be fearful to their eyes, yet in protection of their tender ones who hath not seen them, even those with wings, which sometimes they have used with fearful flight, yada, yada, yada. He's not talking about, oh, these animals, they have an idea of lineage. He is talking about, you know, this is a fundamental primal aspect of loving your children. I mean, I think you do need, you're saying this is all political. I mean, that has to, you have to quite try to see past the language they're using, which is purely the language of familial fellow feeling. Yeah, but he but says... Is it, or um, is it the language later. of tribe and the language of... Yeah, but yeah, you know, this I, isn't the again, we are we are getting this. into the problem where we are saying, "Oh, is it political? Is it is it familial?" I mean, we are talking about a royal family here. I mean, we can't yeah. say you can't. I, I would say that they are coextensive with one another, and the language here does really put the emphasis on the uh, the familial part of it, even if this is inherently political. You can't. Yeah, but it is also inherently family. Father is what I'm trying to get. It's it's not about the relationship, but the role of being a father. It's not about the relationship between father and son. It's about the At the fact moment, that... it does feel like we're arguing about the Trinity, where it's like, oh, yes, yeah. these are entirely separate things. Or Even though they are all co-equal, they're entirely separate. You say the role of father. Yes, that is being a father. That is loving your son. I mean, what can you, what can you tell me about the relationship between Henry the Sixth and his son? I'd okay, say that he doesn't seem to care that much about it. Play, I'd say that that is part of why they're saying you unloving father. You don't want your son to have such... That is one of the arguments they have against him. But you don't seem to care about your son's well-being. And he doesn't seem to care about his son's well-being. He seems to care more about people not dying in war. So I'd say that his mother does show in the role of mother, in the love she feels towards her son. And I'd say that there is, you say, you try to make a distinction between the role of parent and the actual personal loving of someone. I think that's quite an odd way of phrasing it. I think that the, you, a mother loves her son in the role of mother. That is inherent to the loving of the son. Uh, so I'd say that we do get quite a lot of Margaret loving her son. We don't get Henry loving his son. And that is the accusation lots of people make against him, that he doesn't love his son. And perhaps for the best, given he doesn't want to go to war over this. Um, for me, I would just like to say uh, for Clifford's um, argument, I think it touches more on divine right and natural order as opposed to love. Because... Um, yeah, Dostiel is it blah 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 blah. And long hereafter, say unto his child, what my great grandfather and his grandsire got, my careless father fondly gave away. Oh, ah, what shame were this! Look on the boy and let his manly face, which promiseth successful fortune, steal thy melting. Curse you, fucking ah, sirens! Why now? Why now? For shame, my liege, make them your precedent. Um, we're not pity for the boy, da, 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 da. And long hereafter, say unto his child what my great-grandfather and his gra- and his grandsire got, my careless father fondly gave away. Ah, what a shame were this. Look on the boy and let his manly fle- and let his manly face, which promiseth successful fortune, steal thy melting heart to hold thine own and leave thine own with him. So the pun- the point that he finishes with is that shame on you for being so unnatural a father so unnatural a king that would leave that would um throw away his divine right that was throw away the natural order of things how dare you give your kingship to someone below you when it it was given to you by god and how and that is how 
nature works. And again, I am not. I would say that I am not saying that the political aspect, the lineage aspect, has nothing to do with this. I am merely saying that there is the familial aspect here. That you know, royal family, politics, lineage, actual personal fellow feeling—all of these are wrapped up together. So I am saying, I am saying that there is a personal aspect here. This isn't just political. There, this is familial, personal. That that part is definitely in here. That is what. That is all oh, yeah. I am saying. In that sense, I yeah, I definitely agree, especially because Lord Clifford does seem like a very, you know, um, feelings person in that you yeah. just killed my dad. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to murder all of your family because I feel like it. That is my justice. So, so yeah. On the note of Clifford, throughout the rest of the play, he doesn't like to mention that he killed a child. He always mentioned that, oh, I killed your father, oh, I killed someone else. He, he really does not like to dwell on the fact that he killed a child. Do we think this is perhaps giving him a bit of depth, that he realizes, oh, shit, I made a bit of a mistake. I don't want to think about killing a child. I'll be honest, I didn't pick up that it was a child. Yes, I think in real, I mean, I say in real life he was only 17. That's still a bad thing to kill a 17-year-old um, who, was, who was surrendering to is you. It, wouldn't he have been on the field of battle by then? Yes, at this point. So I think in this part, he's meant to be like, uh, it makes sense if he's 12 years old in this play. Yeah, he's literally um, coming. He's literally at school, essentially. Yeah, he's meant to be like part of a priesthood or something, or at least, you know, under the protection of a priesthood. And for the voice actor in the Audacity version, they definitely. The Audible to... version? The Audible Sorry. version? Yeah. What did I say? You said the Audacity version. Oh, you said it before, right, and I didn't correct you then, so I'm correcting you now. That's fair. Yeah. In the audible version, um, the voice actor was also a child. And I do like it that um, as the child died, he used um, a Latin phrase, which I didn't know what the fuck the meaning was. So I googled it and it says, may the gods cause your action to be that which makes you best known. So I hope you go down as a child killer. And um, I think Lord, that phrase might be sitting heavy on Lord Clifford's heart, perhaps. And it's like, no, I killed your dad. I killed your dad. It's like, no, you killed a fucking child, sir. And um, as so maybe this monologue is like also pointing out the fact that maybe subconsciously he's thinking about children and how they should be given what they deserve. Maybe. I don't know. Back to scene three. Yes, quite uh, a lot of this is, you know, back and forth. Right now, so the Margaret's forces, they seem to be dominant, but now the Yorkists are picking up energy and fighting back. And now we cut to that scene, which Greg did not like, and me and Sophie quite like, where Henry is quite alone, and he's thinking, oh, what? He, he's talking about how awful war is. And he has, uh, let's so say, a relative... Down to scene five, is that our plan here? Yeah. I mean, like, so we were in the, the Lord Clifford's monologue that we debated about for probably over 15 minutes um, was Act 2, Scene 2. Um, Margaret, in that same act, uh, Queen Margaret gets distracted by the Plantagenet brothers and they go, you know what, we're going to go to war. We're going to go to war. Act 2, Scene 3, no one is winning, but Richard rolls charisma and yep. um, gets people fired up. Act 2, Scene 4, Richard versus Clifford. Um it's a very short scene where they just briefly diss each other and then they go, yeah, we fight off screen. 
off stage. And then they I mean, they do, they do fight on stage. They fight on stage. But yeah, Warwick but comes keep... and he breaks up the fight and Clifford runs away. Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah you're goes, right. Hey, I'm going to hunt him down. Nay, Warwick, single out some other chase, for I myself will hunt this wolf to death. I mean, you, I mean, for all the murders Richard commits, I think this is a justified one, that he wants to kill the person who killed his child brother. Yeah, that makes sense. And he wants to do it in single combat. So that's quite, uh, that's quite fair-minded of him. Or maybe it's that, you know, no, he's mine. Of, the guy's mine. Do you think the question of Edward's caring as a father was controversial? Let's get into this thing. Yes. We get into <laughs> Act 2, Scene 5, where this is Henry... And it begins in this, I mean, I'm not, this, it begins with uh, Henry, he's alone, and he's making a speech about how, a series of metaphors about how war and civil war and human social chaos is like nature, where he says, uh, this battle fares like the morning's war, when dying clouds contend with growing light, what time the shepherd blowing of his nails can either call it perfect day nor night. Now sways it this way like a mighty sea, forced by the tide to combat with the wind. Now sways it that way like the self-same sea, forced to retire by fury of the wind. Sometimes a flood, and on and on and on, using various metaphors of nature to frame this kind of war as a back and forth, neither side winning for that long, but this violent natural but what do we think of this this paragraph? Because in my introduction, at the very least, they're saying that we have Henry moving from being a weak king to a kind of more principled pacifist, a more principled... I mean, his, Margaret uses the, the multi-meaning phrase soft courage. Now, that could mean he lacks courage, but it could also be a meaning that soft courage, the courage of someone who is soft, the, the courage to be a pacifist, the courage not to fight. Uh what do we think of Henry? Do we think he's a pacifist, or do we think do we think he is brave in his own way? Do we th- what do we think, or what do we think of this monologue in general? I think um, this is just a bit of a, a, a theory in my brain, but I think Shakespeare got in a bit of trouble when he wrote uh, Henry Part Two. Um, just especially mostly because of Henry's scene going, hey, fuck, it sucks to be king. Um, and how, you know, how basically cowardly he was. And you could, as you could write Clifford or you could, sorry, you could write Richard III as someone who develops into his evil or he was evil all along. Um, I think you could... Um, play Henry either as an absolute awful coward who has no spine, just absolute cartilage for bones and nothing else, or um, this tormented saintly figure who would have been a perfect um, king during peacetime, and, but, you know, just during war, he's an absolute milksop. And do you go for a dignified route or a cowardly route. And arguably, you could say the cowardly route would be a more interesting or at least a more fun watch of the play. But if you're also pandering to the nobility, oh, maybe we should try to make him a bit more, just a bit more tortured, a bit more saintly, 
you know, trying the guy that's trying to go for the high ground and people aren't letting him without, you know, chastising him for being a child or for being unnatural or that jazz. And, um, you know, pe- the people who actually chastise him for being unnatural and being soft and being cowardly do tend to be really unnatural bastards like Margaret, who who is Amazonian, you know, a French wolf, Clifford, who kills children, all that. So Yes, Henry does seem to be the type of person who says that, no, no, we'll talk this out, we'll talk this out. And he does seriously want it to be the case that this is a situation where his authority as king can make things go better. He Earlier on, he says, have done with words, my lords, and hear me speak. And it's like, no, it doesn't. Uh, so it's like, I prithee give no limits to my tongue. I am a king and I'm privileged to speak. But he really wants it to be, oh, no, I hope that my power is king, that my words can make things right. Well, no, this is not that situation where your power can manifest itself through words. This is a situation where the only thing people listen to is force. And he is not that kind of person who can muster up any force. Exactly. And because and so I think um, as a character, it's a, I really like Henry as a character for that reason. But I think Shakespeare got a little bit in trouble for it, for writing him like that in part two. So maybe he commissioned himself to write part three to go, okay, okay, okay. He's not a coward. I promise. I promise. He's just really torn up. He's, you know, he's he a, a perfect shepherd. He's a saint. And I think part of it is also that Henry VI was, especially to most people at the time, known as the crazy king. So there, there were moments where people knew him as there were moments of him being quite with it and kingly and other times where he was crazy and possibly cowardly. Yes, so like I, apparently I one of the reasons of why... One of the reasons why Margaret takes power is because he went temporarily insane. Hmm. And I I, I feel very much that there are moments that Henry is used as Shakespeare's own voice when it comes to war. And that clouds the character a little bit as well. That I think a number of moments of this is Shakespeare taking a moment to reflect on war sucks. And war very rarely it's good for the actual people who fight in it. Uh, yes. Uh, and so yeah, I, I just, sorry, I just want to point, uh, finish my point saying I think this play exists very specifically for this monologue. This monologue, this play would not exist if Shakespeare hadn't gotten in trouble and was like, okay, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Here, have Henry tormented saintly. Act two, scene five, monologue. This play would not exist without it. And move. So yes, and moving on to the part which Greg has, I think it either in this recording or in the pre-record, the moment that Greg seems to hate about this play, we move on to a tableau where Henry is in the foreground. I assume the foreground, but then in the background there is two sets of fathers and sons. One is a son who has accidentally killed his father, and the other is a father who has accidentally killed his son. And both of them give long speeches about saying that, oh, I killed our stranger. I killed you because I wanted your money. Oh, no, I'm getting a closer look at your face. Oh, my God, it's my father or it's my son. And this happens uh, essentially twice in quick succession. Uh, 
And I will give my defense of this, my first level of defense of this uh, tableau, which is that we have begun with Henry giving his speech about the evils of war, how war is like nature, that sometimes the sea is going against the wind and the wind is going against the sea, how it's like... uh, um, the, the morning fighting against the dark and the dark fighting against the morning. Now, these are all very lovely images, very sort of sublime images of the power of nature. But we are in danger in talking about war in this kind of way that we are getting a bit too abstract. And so I think it is good that we immediately move from this very poetic description of war and get right into a father killing a son. We move from the abstraction of it into a very clear example of the kind of confusion, the bloodshed, the almost uh, patricide, definitely patricide, filial slaughter of war. We move to a specific example of it. But just general comments on this tableau. I mean, I I will say that um, this is another anime reference. When I saw this, it did sort of remind me of those scenes in Revolutionary Girl Lieutenant, where there'd be a character in the front, and then they would just then it would sort they would still be in the front line, but then in the background you see those shadow girls come in to give their their somewhat metaphorical representation of what's just happened in the episode. Yeah, yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, God damn it, you're right, and I hate that a little. Surely you'd love it. Ah, love and hate to me, but... to me, I hate this scene. Because it is so clearly a holdover from all the theatre that came before Shakespeare, rather than that beautiful evidence of all the theatre that came after Shakespeare. And I will say I like it precisely because it is a holdover from all the theatre that came before Shakespeare. I think we both like and hate it for the exact same reason, and I think that's awesome. (laughs) Um, Yes. I do like how incredibly stagey it is. Like, here is the metaphor happening yep. behind me. Yep. It's extremely stagey. It is not at all subtle. It feels very much like something you would expect a Baptist church today to put on. Uh-huh. I mean, if a Baptist church could write like this, I'd probably go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, th- that's my problem with it. And I th- I. Th- I can appreciate if people like it for the exact same reasons, but I really hate it for that very reason. It's it's not what I come to theatre for. It's not what I read Shakespeare for. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, love, there I'll is go a and love... watch a lecture instead. There's a lovely moment where he does, where Henry gives quite a direct metaphor for the entire War of the Roses. He's looking down at a de- one of the dead... I think it's he's looking down at the dead son. And he's saying, woe above woe, grief more common... So, woe above woe, grief more than common grief. Oh, that my death would stay these fruitful deeds. Oh, pity, pity, gentle heaven, pity. The red rose and the white are on his face. The fatal colours of our striving houses. The one his purple blood right well resembles. The other, his pale cheeks, methinks, presenteth. Whither one rose, wither one rose, and let the other flourish. If you contend, a thousand lives must wither. Now that is, I'd say that that is an incredibly direct metaphor, and I imagine that if this was written in a modern script, uh, one of the editors would say, hmm, I think maybe you're getting a bit direct there, Willie. 
let's take that out. But I do like this 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 little passage. Either where... that or the editor would say, yes, this is what it should be called. The play should be called The Red Rose and the White. Yes. <laughs> this is where he names the play in the dialogue. <laughs> he looks towards the camera and says, this truly is The Red Rose and the White. Yes. <laughs> This truly is Henry VI, Part 3. Yes. Yes, exactly. I can't believe we're referencing Family Guy in this podcast, but sure. Yes, I'm sure. That's why I'm <laughs> Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Yes. Um, but yeah, yeah, that that's why I hate it. I'm glad that I can say that I hate it for the same reason you love it. I think that works very well. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah, I just... It, it's not what I like about theatre. And uh, I find that actually I need the, whenever I, I can't stand actually going to a theatre place, I need someone just to accept that these are people just pretending to do things on stage because otherwise I cannot suspend my suspension of disbelief. I just think, no, you're people on stage. I can see you. I, I need someone to just accept that this isn't happening. This isn't happening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but now we get to but so after that happens we have the Yorkists are now on the front foot you'll notice in this play I'm going to say a lot the Yorkists are on the front foot the the Yorkists are on the back foot Margaret is on the front foot this is going this is a play where the war is going very much back and forth and that Shakespeare set himself a challenge by choosing such a confusing part of history <laughs> but uh but the Yorkists are on the front foot and Margaret comes in and says, come on, Henry, we need to run away. And they run away. And, and then we this... get what I think is the best monologue in the play. Clifford's so the Clifford monologue? Yes. <laughs> and Henry, hadst thou swayed as kings should do, or as thy father did and his father did, giving no ground under the house of York, they never then had sprung like summer flies. I and ten thousand in this luckless realm had left no mourning widows for our death, and thou this day hadst kept thy chair in peace. Again, it's one of those things where I do wonder how it's meant to flavour our perception of the speech, knowing that it's being said by a child killer. But what do you like about this, Greg? Well, I liked a lot of the images. I liked that this is very much someone saying, I, I, I am dead. I am dead for a good cause. Um, I am not important, except as part of a number willing to die for the good cause. Um, This is Clifford standing up and saying, there was more to this than revenge for me. But I would say that uh, I mentioned before how he does seem to try to, uh, to talk around the fact that he did kill Rutland, he says, I stabbed your father's bosom, split my breast. I stabbed your father's bosom. So he mentions the father. He doesn't mention the child. Still doesn't want to admit that. Do we think this play would materially change if he never killed the child? I think so. Because the, the thing is, the, the child begged for his life in a very eloquent way. So I didn't do nothing wrong. And like, if you, if you, if you do think I did wrong, then imprison me and let me do wrong to you first, instead of let my father do wrong in my stead. And 
just just let me go. Let me go. It's not, this isn't right. You know this isn't right. And uh, Clover said, nah, you're dead because I said so. And um, even in death, he goes, I hope you are remembered for this and nothing else because that is how wrong it is. And um, by having a no child killer Clifford on Henry's side and on Margaret's side too, um, it would have been a little bit more legitimizing or at least a little bit more morally uncomplicated. Yes, I'd like to, like when we think about Shakespeare's history plays, like on that note where if we didn't have the child killing, then this would be a bit more on Henry's side. It's like when people talk about these plays and they say, oh, Shakespeare bought into the Tudor myth. Shakespeare was a propagandist for their side of history. I think that this play really does not support that. Or at the very least, even if it does have a propagandistic angle, it does not express itself as him picking one side over the other. In this play, neither side... I mean, if, if, if there was a propagandistic urge, he probably would have painted something a bit more in black and white. In this side, both sides are fairly messed up. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree that you definitely can't see this as a propaganda play. Um, what do you guys think about what happens after Clifford's death? Um, for me, it didn't really work because it felt like trying to put in a comic relief moment that isn't very comic. And what and is the comic relief moment? It's them playing with Clifford's death, dead body. It depends um, on, I suppose, how it's presented. It yeah, could... or or it's supposed to be something that is like showing, oh yeah, they're as evil as the other guys who tortured York on a mound. It's like it's neither. It's some guys being freaky with a dead body. I mean, is he dead? I think he's meant to sort of be still alive. It's just that they are going to drag him off later to be actually killed. Because I, I I'm looking at this and I don't see any. Yeah, we, we get age direction but... and dies after the. F- after Edward and Warwick both have some... In my, ver- oh, in my version, the... So, ah, there's actually an annotation in my version that says the, the, the stage direction is Clifford Groans. But then the stage... The, 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 the annotation is many editors follow O's edition, O's edition of And Then Dies. But the okay. exact moment of Clifford's death is not indicated. Oh, and the dramatic tension during the verbal and possibly physical abuse which follows arises from an audience's awareness that he may remain barely alive until some point before line 85. So that, I'd say that that, would change that makes a little bit. Yes. I say that, you know, they are abusing a still alive guy. They are, I mean, they, they are essentially rubbing salt in his wounds. Yes. That, that, that would make them seem more evil at least. I, 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 having thought of that, I'm like, Ooh, I, I hope a good director does it that way. I'm not sure if if um, seeing it as comic relief is um, well, it's comic. Seeing it as comic relief is a choice for me. It just seemed like a harking back to Act One, Scene One, where you know these guys just prove to be childishly cruel and you know sort of young in their violence. It's like it's like oh yeah, this is fine so long as it's me doing the person, me doing the violence on someone else. You know, I have the stick. Ha ha ha. 
Act 3 The Yorkists triumphant. Now Edward is king. And I'd just like to preface something. I think this may have been in the... Ah, this is the introduction of the Oxford edition. Where they're saying... I mean, we know that some of Shakespeare's presentations of characters are very in-keeping with their popular reputations at the time. Like Richard III being an evil guy. That was fairly standard. But Edward seems to have been in other places depicted as being quite a heroic king. In this one, he is not. He's a sort of a flighty, flip-floppy, kind of hedonistic king. Do you find that surprising? That immediately this guy who seemed to be quite a good warrior is now becoming this guy who's willing to sacrifice an entire union with the foreign power for the sake of a temporary, well, not temporary fling, but just a whim of his sexuality? No. Well, we don't know anything about him personally beforehand, right? Actually, we do, I believe. Well, do you want the... to elaborate? Yeah. So um, I'm pretty sure Margaret um, taunts fucking Richard, the one that died, yeah, the wanton Edward and the lusty George. And where's that valiant crookback prodigy, Dickie, your boy, that with his grumbling voice was wont to cheer his dad in mutinies? Oh, with the rest, where is your darling Rutland? Yeah, right before talking about Rutland, like she describes them as, where are your mess of sons to back you now? A mess of sons. Okay. And like, yeah, like you, you could go the wanton Edward and the lusty George. Like, okay, um, she could just be dissing his sons for dissing's sake, but turns out he is a wanton boy. Yeah, and I suppose that this could be uh, weaved into his character earlier by an actor. True, true. That that could have been done. Actually, I think, we, I think we jumped ahead. I should probably give the this information first, which is that Henry has been taken prisoner. Uh, the, so, Hen, so two gamekeepers find Henry and they say, uh, the king wants you taken away. The king wants you imprisoned. And Henry says, I was anointed king at nine months old. My father and my grandfather were kings and you were sworn subjects unto me. And tell me then, have you not broke your oaths? But the gamekeeper says, no, for we were subjects, but while you were king. So this this idea that down on the ground, this talk of legitimate authority doesn't matter. Whoever's king is the person who's called king, the person who holds the power. So at this, so yes, Henry was king. Now he isn't king. There is no talk of title here. There's just Edward says he's the king. He has the power of the king. He is the king. You are not the king. We are going to take you prisoner. Either you have the power of the king or you don't have the power of the king. It doesn't really matter if you have legitimate title. It does seem to have a lot of um love it doesn't okay i won't go say fuck it does seem to have a lot of stock for oaths it has a love for oaths it has like a dream for oaths oaths should not be broken and did you not as subjects of this country swear your oath of loyalty and love for your king and 
the answer is no. Like there was no like, yes, we swore our oath to the king, but you are not the king anymore. Exactly. Um, and oaths are but empty words without the means to support them. And, and even Ed, earlier on, Edward said any oath may be broken for a kingdom. Exactly. Like, it has a love for oaths in the same way that it has a love for authority. It speaks a lot of it, but it is not substantial but anyway let us continue we are at the stage where we are in the court of king henry no king edward we are in the court of king edward we are in so we are in the court of king edward and this is a scene where we get the wanton aspect of his character and it's later on we'll learn that Edward has been sending out feelers to France. He has sent Warwick over to France to broker a marriage alliance with King Louis's daughter. And in this scene, he is going to really scupper this potentially very important alliance he could have with France because he sees a woman called Lady Grey. And Lady Grey, Lady Elizabeth Grey, is coming to him to say, uh, my good, good king... My uh, husband's lands were taken by you. Can I have these lands back uh, just so I can live? Uh, And Edward takes this as an opportunity to seduce her or to attempt to say, please be my wife. Just our first thoughts about this scene, about about his... I mean that this comes from the actual history of the story. When you say that, what do you mean? Literally, he met the wife of a, uh, the widow of a knight and fell in love with her at the exact same time Warwick was over in France trying to arrange something along these lines and yeah Edward's there true. are there are a few moments later on where things happen a bit too conveniently or a bit too coincidentally they they, they shorten the timeline dramatically like most movies do today for history. They shorten the timeline dramatically, but it's a lot closer to history than I ever expected it would be. (laughs) That yes, he married a basically a commoner, and yes, that did get in the way of dealings with France. It probably didn't be the only thing that swung everyone over, and it certainly wasn't the only thing that swung Warwick over, but there's stuff there that's grounded in reality, which is crazy to me. Yeah, and as we were saying before, when it comes to history things, like characters do do weird, irrational, uh, contradictory sort of things. And when it's when we criticize a character's actions, it tends to be trying criticizing the way the author has constructed a character, whether or not it's believable that constructed character would have done these things the real person would have done. And I think I was mentioning before. How Edward the Fourth was sometimes presented as like a good king, a heroic king. I think that Shakespeare does present him here such that it is reasonable and believable that he would do something so stupid as to scupper a marriage alliance with France just for the sake of this common woman in front of him. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't just for this, but the fact that this played a role 
It's crazy. I like how we're talking a lot about Edward's sluttiness and just not much about Elizabeth Grey at all. We can get to that because I do notice that how we view her character and Sophie, you'll know from reading Reckoning of the Rose King that that author has a very specific view of her character. Uh, Yep. That she hears this, she desperately wants revenge for her dead husband and she will seduce the king to get it. But no, in this one, back to this one, it, it is this sort of back and forth where you wonder where, so it's sort of like Edward is saying he's pushing forward, he's trying to seduce her and she's gently pushing away. Like, for instance, one point, uh, uh, so it, it's these one line back and forth. For one, she says, now tell me, madam, do you love your children? I fool dearly as I love myself. And would you not do much to do them good? To do them good, I would sustain some harm. Then get your husband's land to do them good. Therefore I came unto your majesty. I'll tell how you how these lands are to be got. So shall you bind me to your highness's service. What service wilt thou do me if I give them? What do you command that rests in me to do? But you will take exceptions to my boon. No, gracious lord, except I cannot do it. Aye, but canst thou do what I mean to ask? Why then, I will do what your grace commands. So back and forth, it's, he's saying, what will you do for me? Will you do anything for me? And she's saying, oh, I'll do anything, provided that I can do it in good conscience. <laughs> so I'd like to know how much this does seem to be either her, you know, maintaining a level of chastity of not want of saying that no i don't actually want this i don't want this i'm pushing back because i can imagine a way where it is produced like that as her being like no 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 push away push away push away but it could also be presented as her being quite coquettish that she is saying oh she's playing hard to get here both ways can be done i think quite well with the script we have in front of us what do you think of it yeah Sorry, the audacity um, version definitely um, made... Audible. Audible version, once ah, more. Fuck, audible, audible. The audible version um, made her seem very careful, very... How this king is giving me very weird vibes and very weird questions. Um, I, but I, I'm answering them as much as I can with with my general unsuspecting honesty um so i am more inclined to see her that way especially when it comes to how i view it i mean to make it less of her just just playing hard to get i think that maybe it's sort of like there are two ways that if she does succumb to him there are two ways this could go he could say have sex with me for one night and i will then you know make you at best my mistress i there is a way you can view this, which is her basically trying to get a high price for her honor. That, okay, I'm not just going to be a one night stand. She's trying to make, she's maybe trying to press him to be a bit more, you know, push it into a marriage situation. I think there was a line that the Empress Josephine said to Napoleon, which was, The road to my bedroom runs through the Cathedral of Paris, which uh, I think maybe that is one way you could play Lady Grey here. Yeah, I think there's definitely two readings of it. That one is she's making sure she gets the best price possible, and the other one being 
that she really doesn't want to do this until she's cornered into having to. There, there is, there is the possible one of she honestly didn't know what was going on, but ah, oh, I, I, later on, she doesn't seem that stupid. It so, is one of those things where <laughs> you that basic thing in flirting, which is that you know what you're saying, they know what you mean. You know they know what you mean, and you and they know you know they know what they mean. It's just that yeah. no one can actually say what's meant. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure it's flirting. I guess is what I'm, I'm saying. I mean, Clarence. I mean, George. Uh, so one of the sons says he is the bluntest wooer in Christendom. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure we we could call what's coming out of her mouth flirting. Yes. I mean, Edward Edward himself seems to think that she is um, holding back, so her looks do argue her replete with modesty. And Richard III does later go, the widow likes it not, for she looks very sad. And uh, so we've talked about this flirtation, well, I say flirtation, not flirtation, this um, scene of sexual, perhaps a bit... uh, um, forceful scene of back and forth, we end it with apparently one of the longest monologues in Shakespeare, one of Richard III's first monologues. So he's talking about how his body is, that he is a hunchback, he well, so, and am I then a man to be beloved? Oh, monstrous fault, to harbour such a thought. Then since this earth affords no joy to me, but to command, to check, to overbear such as are of better person than myself. I'll make my heaven to dream upon the crown, and whiles I live to count this world but hell, until my misshaped trunk that bears this head be round impaled with a glorious crown, and yet I know not how to get the crown. So he's basically saying here that I have he's seen his brother sort of wooing this woman, and he's saying, well, I can't get a woman. It's almost incelly, frankly. Um, I can't get a girl. Well, I can't have love. I suppose my only happiness in this world will be to dominate other human beings. That is the insight we get into his character. Uh, So, I mean, for those who want to view this as, I mean, there are two ways to view this. One is that this is a revelation of a character that was unchanging, a revelation of something that was always there, that he was always a Machiavellian sort of guy. Another way to view his development is that he has just seen his brother woo this woman, taken this woman. He's saying, that can't be for me. I can't have these kinds of loves. And my brother is now king. This absolute uh, vain, uh, wanton asshole is now the king. I want to be king now. I want, I can't have love. I may as well be king. So it could be that this is a matter of development. Uh, but what do we think of this entire speech? Do we, I mean, for one, do we think it deserves to be this long? Definitely don't think it deserves to be this long, but I no. I do think it is character development. Um, I, I I think I think this is one of those examples of Shakespeare still trying to find his footing, and he's like, I want to develop all this stuff about the character, but I already have so much stuff going on. I can't bear to add four more scenes to make it work. How about I just do it all in one big soliloquy? It is very incelly, I'll give it that. Um, but I think it is 
it feels like a cheat code for um, character development. I feel like sort of like a, a lever from, you know, um, nice Richard to bad Richard just keeps tilting as you keep listening or reading this monologue. It's like, I Edward will use women honorably. Yeah, um, he will. Like, because, you know, Edward's a, a slutty boy, but a good boy. And would he were wasted, marrow bones and all, that from his loins no helpful branch may spring to cross me from the golden time I look for. Um, which actually, never mind, that's pretty bad from the very beginning. <laughs> I mean, so I, I, to bring it back to a play we've previously done, um, Tamburlaine, the kind of character development, Greg, which you did not like in that play, which was that the character would be one way, and then there'd be a speech later on where, in between the two speeches, they have changed their character. They have developed but off stage. No. This does seem I, like that. I would rather this. I would rather this where we get an ultra-long monologue than it ha- have happened off stage. But, yeah, even this isn't great. But moving on, moving on, we now get to the actual upshot of Edward choosing to marry this common woman. I, I, you know, looking back on that scene, I don't think she actually says yes to him, but she eventually does marry him. But that, we that, have... That's irrelevant. She doesn't have a choice. Yes. We have Margaret going to the King of France for help. You know, she is a French woman, so she goes to the King of France for help. And the King of France initially seems to be on her side, but then Warwick comes and says, you know, tries to get the French on side with the Yorkists via a marriage offer, saying, ah, King Edward will marry uh, your daughter, uh, Bona, I think. Aha. That yeah, is, I probably have a better way of pronouncing that name, but her, his daughter... Bona. Ah, so now <laughs> our sister. His sister, Bona. Yes. They're all of those Kenneth Williams sketches from the 60s, saying, and welcome to, Bo- to Bona hairdressers. Uh... You know those? Is that a reference that is in with the kids? Is this Absolutely 1960s not. radio sketch show in with the kids based on a 1940s series of gay slang? Is that in with the kids? It's nearly a century. It's if you like round it up, it's nearly a century old. Oh dear, oh dear! But audience members, please look up online. Um, you know, Kenneth Williams, <laughs> Richard Horn show. Uh okay. Let's let's push on. I just yes, certainly. So the Warwick is trying to get the Yorkists on side. So he says that can my ki- my king Edward wants to marry your sister, and uh, Lewis essentially Lu- uh, he's called Lewis in this play. I'm not sure if it's not Lewis or Louis, but he's saying to uh, Lewis essentially does pick up the fact that legitimate authority doesn't seem to matter. Might seems to matter more for being a king in this play because he says to Margaret, but if your title to the crown be weak as may appear by Edward's good success. Then t- so he's saying that the fact that Edward has succeeded in becoming king, that does suggest that your title is weak. So the, the fact of being mighty enough to hold the kingship, that is viewed by Lewis as evidence of him having a stronger claim to the throne. The actual genealogies, they don't matter here. I mean, especially with... Um, you know, mobilizing armies in mind, of course you'd want to have the one, you'd want the team with the higher level of might because, and also I guess higher level authority because if you have authority, you can actually move those armies. Genealogy, yeah, do not give a shit about. 
But uh, it does seem that um, when it comes to walking armies, this insult done to the the Lady Bona and uh, the and the King Louis is really undone by the fact that a messenger comes in and says, "Ah, the King has married uh, another woman. He can't. This proposal he sent forward it can't happen anymore. He is already married." And this is sort of what turns the French onto the side of Margaret. And it also is what turns Warwick against the Yorkist. Now, this really does change how we view his character. And I suppose there are a lot of different ways in which you can view his character. Earlier on, we were saying that Warwick, an honorable guy, a valiant sort of guy. I'd say that definitely some people could view Warwick here as being a sort of guy who sees which way the wind's blowing. And he says, ah, well. Uh, the French are on Margaret's side, I'll turn to Margaret. Or he could also be saying that, you know, I I was in this for myself and now you're taking stuff away from me. So I'm going to turn, I'm going to betray you, Edward, I'm going to move over to Margaret. Yeah, I think it can be directed either way. But on first reading, I went straight for the, yeah, this guy's been fucked over. Um, Yeah, he's put all this work in. He's tried to do all the right things. He's working as an honourable soldier should, and he's been disrespected in a major way. And it's and... sort of maybe a bit like um, the Lancaster problem in miniature, because on the Lancaster side, we have Henry V, great king, marvellous king. The son is worthless as a king. And so lots of people who were originally quite on side of the Lancaster say, well, we didn't support this guy, this Henry VI guy. Here, it's that Warwick, he was on Richard, Duke of York's side. You know, good guy, valiant guy. Yeah. Now his wanton son who can't even keep it in his pants long enough for a diplomatic meeting to go through. I didn't sign up to be with this guy. I'll switch sides. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's it's something very much like that. Um, but I, I think you're right. I thought think it can be played the opposite way and it can be the I'm just picking the winning side. Um, but I read it as very much an this he's honest when he's saying he has been let down and does anyone remember why Warwick uh turned on Henry in the first place? You are you saying in Henry the Sixth Part Two? Yeah. I think it's just that he was convinced by Richard, Duke of York's claims of lineage. And maybe he yeah. was just against Henry he was already against Henry for losing France. For losing those parts of France, and now he's thinking, ah, well, um, this guy, Richard Duke of York, has given me a good reason to think he's the rightful king. Yeah, I always got it, got the impression from the bit I remember is that, yeah, both York and Henry had the same right according to Warwick, but Warwick saw the leadership in York he didn't see in Henry, and he very much is a soldier. Um, and we, we we even get that in the beginning of this play, talking about, yeah, don't bring up France because you lost all of France. Yes. And um, actually he does also say we usurp this throne, kind of at the very start, kind of implying that he knows that he is doing wrong or that he knows he is doing a revolution or something yeah. like that. But, yeah, like... um. I think for me, Warwick very much is a 
I do this because I feel personally fucked as opposed because the thing is aside from you know just a king who is you know can't keep it in his pants Warwick traveled for weeks on ship he like traveled days on land and he comes here and then the letter follows him like practically immediately um to the court where he has to realize in person in front of the king that uh his that the front of the french king that his king that he chose to follow was a dumb fuck boy and i was wondering what sort of risk there would be that he has now embarrassed the king of france and yeah not only has physical he... damage danger yeah it's incredible like he was like i could be like the French king could just straight up kill me if he wanted to because I just embarrassed him and my king has embarrassed me. What the hell? Like, I think this will feel very personal in the moment, at least. But yeah, um, even like Earl of Warwick, King Lewis, I here protest in sight of heaven and by the hope I have of heavenly bliss that I am clear from this misdeed of Edwards. No more my king, for he dishonors me, but most himself if he could see his shame. Did I forget that by the house of York, my father came untimely to his death? Did I let pass the abuse down to my niece? Did I impale him with the regal crown? Et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then he goes, my noble queen, let former grudges pass. And henceforth, I am thy true servitor. I will revenge his wrong to Lady Bona and replant Henry in his former state. And Queen Margaret's like, Warwick, these words have turned my hate to love. And I forgive and for quite forget old faults and joy that thou becomest king henry's friend and i was like what do we think that there is a way to view this as being a reasonable rational decision on her part yeah i took this to be a political move on her part i mean i mean i know it's a political move but is it a uh, an intelligent political move i mean it's intelligent but i'm surprised that she's i guess yeah just generally queen margaret has been so vehemently angry with everyone involved. Warwick, what are thy news and yours, fair queen? Mine, such as fill my heart with unhoped joys. And you know, and then King Lewis is pissed about the news and she goes, I told your majesty as much before, this proveth Edward's love and Warwick's honesty. And it's like, wait, you're already planting the ways to defend this man, this man that betrayed your king and your son and killed a lot of people on your side. Like, killed Clifford, actually. So it's like, hmm, I don't know, Margaret. Act four. Richard and George are very angry at their brother Edward's marriage, and they also get news that France is also very angry. And it seems that Clarence is ready to change sides. Richard, however, saying, I'll stay the course, I'll stay with my brother. Uh, But they do sort of remonstrate with Edward. They're not afraid to speak their mind. Where Gloucester says, Okay, so, and shall have your will because our king? So, yet hasty marriage seldom proveth well. So he's willing to say, look, this, this probably isn't a good idea. So already we have um, division in the ranks. The only thing I really liked uh, was just made me smile about this scene was that the postman goes, 
please don't kill me. I have bad <laughs> oh, news. <yeah. laughs> don't shoot I have, the messenger. I have so much bad news. And if you could just promise me you won't kill me, I will give it to you. But just, just, just please first. It's like, all right, all right, all right. Just, just fucking tell us. So, yeah, everything's gone to shit. <laughs> but then we let us go on to the next, uh, to the next scene where. Warwick comes along with an army and he imprisons Edward. Edward's down for the count. He imprisons Edward. Literally in two scenes. Scene two, Warwick and brother George reunite to prepare to fight. Act four, scene three, King Edward is captured. It's so quick. It's so quick. And quite quickly he will be released as well. But not yet. Not just yet. <laughs> I mean, when, no, I just want to, to dwell slightly on Warwick's character because... Warwick does seem to be bigging himself up quite a bit. He treats himself as being a kingmaker over Acts 4 and 5, where he says uh, where he says here, um, so I, but the case is altered. When you disgraced me and my embassade, then I degraded you from being king and come now to create you Duke of York. So he's saying, no, I am the person. I am the person who has the power to make you king. I think this is very much a reactive thing, though, not uh, being, it's not letting out something from his past that he was hiding it was more of a i made you who you are kind of thing how, how do you disrespect me after i made you who you are he didn't think that way earlier he wasn't thinking oh look how powerful i am I, I made a king it's more of a reactive way of talking i mean maybe he has an accurate view of his historical significance <laughs> but we, we are I, this may just this may actually get into you know that theme of legitimate authority doesn't matter um, what matters is power. And this guy, Warwick, because of his military might, he is effective. He is a kingmaker. He, legitimate authority. It's not, it's not God who makes you king. It is people like Warwick who are willing to go to war. That is what makes you king. But moving on. So quite quickly, Edward was taken prisoner. Now, quite quickly, Richard breaks him free from captivity. So because essentially what happens is that Rich, Edward is being kept prisoner by an archbishop. The archbishop has has left him essentially free to walk where he likes. Essentially, so Richard can just go over there while Edward is hunting and say, "Bring him out to be uh, to be saved." Now, in oh. my edition, they do mention they do actually give in the annotations a reason why perhaps the uh, the the uh, imprisonment was so light. It's that Edward, I think, it's that he made the archbishop the archbishop, or that his father made the archbishop the archbishop, and so the archbishop was sort of saying. I won't treat you that badly. I owe my place to you. That explanation does not appear in this play. So it's just, it's just a very convenient breaking him free. Wait, I feel like we really should be talking a little bit more in-depthly of Act 4, Scene 6. Where, where yes, yeah, so in this scene, Henry, uh, essentially he makes the opposite compromise of the start of this play. In the start of this play, he says to, uh, to the Duke of York, I'll give you, let me be king for the rest of my life, but you can have the succession. You can have the lineage. You and your children can then be king. Here, he's essentially saying, look, I've always wanted to be a shepherd. I've always wanted to be a holy man. So let me go to you, Clarence, and you, Warwick. You run the country. You run the country, but let my children and my line be kings afterwards. Yeah. So while I myself will lead a private life and in devotion spend my latter days, 
to sin's rebuke and my creator's praise. It it does seem a bit naive of him to assume that um, he can just give power to these two people and that they will just gladly hand it back to his line. Hey, he was going to do it for them, so of course they'll do it for him. Yes. And um, I guess he got a taste of just being who he is because, you know, he was imprisoned in a tower for how many days and the lieutenant was like, I hope you forgive me for, you know, putting you here and keeping you here and not letting you out. And Henry was like, no, nah, I actually really enjoyed it. It was nice. Like a, a bird in a cage, but still a nice cage, a nice bird. I got to sing. Didn't have to yes, worry don't about Don't worry, being... sir. You treated me so well. Yeah. Like, oh, this is good. And I want to live this way forever till I die. I don't have to worry about being king anymore. So I guess... um. Part of me wonders if that was Henry's way of going, hey, if I were dead, this war won't happen. So my if my power was dead, if the power that is connected to the Henry name ceased to exist and was in the power of Warwick, who is, you know, pretty charismatic, does his job, seems to care more about the crown than crown and country, running the country, um, that's fine. And also I get to be a natural father by giving his line back to his son. Although I will say, very strange of of giving Brother George of Plantagenet a role in his paradise of self-isolation. That was a dumb move. But then what happens next is that Edward, he was very safely broken. He was very easily broken from prison. Now he is very easily going to take back York. He essentially walks up to York and the mayor says, no, no, you can't come in. Uh, but then he says, oh, don't worry. If you just let me be Duke of York again, I will quite happily stop there. I won't try to become king again. And the mayor is maybe convinced by this. He... Edward moves back in and he says, now let's go and take England again. I'm going to be king again. He doesn't automatically say, I'm going to be king again. He has to be convinced. I I put my hand to the fire too much. Richard says, no, go on, put your hand to the fire again. Okay, I'll put my hand to the fire again. Well, Richard needs him to, so. (laughs) My my notes just say, Mayor York is a dumb boy. And uh, King Edward is peer pressured into becoming king. Yeah. <laughs> which I'm um, like his father before him. Yeah. Um, also, I just wanted to point, point out at a uh, uh, note that I made ages ago that I really wanted to say. I think it was when um, Clifford was chastising Henry. And Henry responds, like, my life is a sunk cost fallacy. I don't want to give my son a sunk cost fallacy. And I feel like... Um, Though that is a paraphrase, I assume. Yes, very much a paraphrase, although that's pretty much what I've written as well. Um, and I just feel like King Edward is not very self-aware of the sunk cost fallacy. Uh, it's like, all right, cool, I'm in, in for a pound, I guess. In for a penny, in for a pound. It doesn't help that uh, with his uh, supporters going, it's now or never, boy. Is it now or is it never? And Richard going, it's, it should be now, man. It should be now. It's like, all right, fine, it's now. 
Act five. Now, here the we final go. Final act. We're, we're, it's it's this particular scene where everyone's turning up. Oxford for Lung- Lancaster. Montague for Lancaster. Um. What's gonna? Yeah, King Edward the Fourth. What Warwick would thou leave the town and fight? I, I will await with Barnet presently and bid thee battle, Edward, if thou darest. It's like yes, yes. I'll I'll leave this t- this these town walls and we'll go outside and we'll have our fight. And I know that happens, but I still can't get over the fact that that happens. It's like yeah. I was remembering some. There was. The designer of the Crusader Kings video games, these very historically based video games, he was saying there's a problem when you're making a video game based on history and trying to be accurate to history because you want the players to feel like they have control of history and they're living out their power fantasies. But people in history do things so stupid and so irrational that no intelligent player would ever do them. And so it's a, very, a challenging act to make it so the player wants to do these stupid, irrational things. And here, yeah. a lot of writing historical fiction, especially this period, is trying to make sure that the characters doing these irrational things make sense. And I think that, that yeah, I, I put it all on myself. But I, I, I just had to laugh when I noticed those lines where it's like, yeah, yeah, let's get, get away from behind our walls where we're safe so we can battle in an open field because that's what we do. It reminds me, I was doing some look into an um, ancient general whose great strategy, his wild manipulative strategy, was simply that he was willing to fight at night. That, that was it. That's all it was, was he, ra- rather than set up camp and do nothing until the morning, he would go into the enemy's camp and attack them. And not, not stealthily or anything like that, just attack them at night. Sun Tzu, Art of War. <laughs> something nice. like one of the Nazis' early battle strategies was just to get all their soldiers high on methamphetamines. That let them fight through the night and walk all day. What? It's one of those things where the Allies were just, oh, they can't move that quickly. Of course they can't. Oh, shit, they're all hopped up on methamphetamines. Of course they can walk that quickly. Whoa. There's a book called Blitz. I forget. Let me check who the author mm. is. It's a book called Blitz. It's yeah. about the Nazis' experiments with drugs. <laughs> yeah, it's a good book. <laughs> yes, it is. Like, quite a lot of their early success was the Allies not accounting for how productive drugs make you at the start of the addiction. But yeah, I, I do like this whole each new group arrives and Edward gets more and more nervous as the next group arrives. I wonder how many people were actually on stage. Because I do remember that um, Ben Johnson and Philip Sidney, they were quite against stage battles because they're saying, oh, this battle of two armies done by three men on either side with fake swords. They didn't like it. Yes, well, well, each person enters with drum and colours. So I've got to assume that someone holding a flag Maybe someone else with a drum. I mean, you could probably have like a tapestry or like um, you know, oh yeah, yeah or the cloth with there's like a single a... drummer in the background drumming as each person enters. Yeah, yeah and having well, maybe it's like those Kickstarter rewards where you give the fans of the previous um, play. You say you can come up here and be a soldier on stage with us. Yeah, uh-huh. That always works. 
but then we have, you know, Warwick is killed, Warwick is murdered, and George, they, Edward lets George back on his side. Uh, Edward claims it's because, you know, he says, oh, I'll be on my family's side. He says, I will not ruin us. So, so father of Warwick, know thou what this means. He shows a red rose. Look here, I throw my infamy at thee. I will not ruinate my father's house who gave his blood to lime the stones together and set up Lancaster. And then he changes to um, Edward's side again. Now, I think that it's, again, multiple ways to view this. One is that, ah, I've seen the light. I should probably be with my family. Another part is that, oh, I I definitely see which way the wind is blowing. I I left my brother when I thought that he had fucked up. I see now that the um, the Lancasters have fucked up. I'm going to go back to the, the winning side. Yeah, yeah, I, you've got to have one character that's like that, right? Yes. In the long run, it doesn't really benefit him that much, given that in Richard III, Richard III does kill him. So, Yeah, you can't trust him. Might as well. Yeah. Well, they didn't know that at the time. They're all three <laughs> brothers. They're best buddies. He's my bro. And you know what? I'll be a good bro to my bro, even if he is a dumb fuck boy bro. But then we have, you know, but then we, so look, we're seeming to rush through this, but we have the Yorkists. They definitely seem to be sort of on the up foot. They do seem to be getting a lot of power back. And then we cut to Margaret. And Margaret, she gives quite a rousing pre-battle speech to her people. And it's quite a good show of rhetoric. Because the way the speech works is he first starts out by saying, look, I accept the odds. I accept, you know, we, we are sort of outmatched here. And then she goes on to say, and yes, I, your leader, I am but a weak and feeble woman, and this is my young child's son. But then she goes on to say, but retreating or deserting won't help you. If you retreat or desert, they will kill you. They will torture you. Your only chance of having a nice life at all is by joining me and by having victory in this war. I mean, this is quite a... uh, I'd say this is quite a show of um, rhetorical skill here. It's, um, I mean, some people do equate Margaret to like Queen Elizabeth, who sometimes, some might say historically um, questionably, um, but, you know, there's a reputation of her giving speeches to soldiers. So some people view Margaret as being a bit of an Elizabeth figure here. Yeah, it's not a bad one, isn't it? I just, my notes are Queen Margaret continues being an icon. Yes. Yeah, then in God's name, lords, be valiant and give signal to fight. Looking up stuff on YouTube, because I often look to see if there's a copy of the play I can see or what people have talked about it. There's a number of people who use this monologue as their, like, audition monologue. It's like, what's a Shakespeare thing that no one, no one at all, no one else has done? And it's like, oh, the Earl of Oxford, or I assume the Earl of Oxford, um, says, women and children of so high a courage and warriors faint. Why, to our perpetual shame, O brave young prince, thy famous grandfather doth live again in thee. Long mayst thou live to bear his image and renew his glories. So again, they're saying, women and children have stood up where the man, Henry, has been sat down. So I, I do view, like, some people have said that, oh, well, obviously, Elizabethan audiences, they see a woman wearing armor, they see a woman going to war, they'd automatically view that as being bad. And I said that, no, it, you know, as I said before, there was a stage history of warrior women on stage, at least. So I'd say that, you know, she is admirable here. She she has 
that even Elizabethan audience would say, oh, this is a warrior woman on stage. Quite rousing. I like this. But here is the problem with um, sort of reading this in script form without any of the actual choreography of the fights, because we have this rousing speech, let's go to battle. And then there's a stage direction, which is alarm, retreat, excursions, exuant. And then immediately they've lost. <laughs> you skip, you move to the next page, they've lost. Um, on stage, I do imagine this will be slightly less of an anti-climax. They sh- I would assume there would be a bit more screaming and people tussling on the on the yes. stage. In your audible, in your audible version, Sophie, was there a bit of a clash, 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 clash going on back and forth for about a few minutes? Um, between every scene and every act, there would be trumpet noises and drums, and especially when there were fight scenes, there would be. <laughs> And you just have to imagine like a middle-aged man just with two two poles of metal just knocking them against each other. Yeah. I mean they might have had they they may have had a couple of dumbbells they used as um as clangers. Where's the soup dragon? That's a reference to the British TV children's show The Clangers. Wow, there's some amazing references going on tonight. I am bringing people into some references that are that are much before my time. Let, let's be clear, this is before my time, definitely, and I, yeah, quite I out of my we are country. All not in our fifties. None of us are in our fifties. I promise. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when I'm talking to you, it feels like it. Oh. All right, let's yeah. see what happens. We have Oxford exiled to Hames Castle. Somerset loses his head. And then what happens with Prince Edward? He's put in a tower, isn't he? Prince Edward is put in a tower. I think he is actually just stabbed by lots of other people. Yeah, doesn't Richard stab him? Yeah, so Gloucester stabs him. So before we had, I think it was uh, Richard. uh, No, so Richard, Duke of York, uh, the the previous Richard. He was stabbed by multiple people. And now Prince Edward is getting stabbed by multiple people. (laughs) I mean, Shakespeare... Does like in this play at least? He does like this scene of it's it's overkill, really. Lots of people ganging up to stab someone to death. It does get the brutality across. There's no honourableness in just stabbing a especially a child here. Uh, there's what no you, honourable. What do you think about the argument of Queen Margaret trying to get herself killed? Uh, yes. What does she say again? They um, uh, never bear me hence dispatch me here. Sheath thy sword, which I would assume she's like pointing at herself. Yes. I'll pardon thee my death. Come on, Clarence, do it now. By heaven, I will not do thee so much ease. But, you know, they let her live and they exile her back to France, I think. Like, where's the devil's butcher? Richard, Richard, where are you? You'll do it. Yes. I. Aye, but that ah, where is the devil's book, Richard? Hard favoured Richard, Richard, word art thou, thou art not here, murder is thy arms deed, petitioners for blood thou ne'er puts back. And then when Edward asks where Richard's gone, Clarence says, To London, and as I guess to make a bloody supper in the tower. He's sudden if a thing comes in his head. So but basically but now we cut to uh Act five, scene six, where <laughs> Where this is where Richard and Henry. This is what TV tropes calls the moral event horizon. <laughs> where, this is the scene where Gloucester and Henry 
essentially, well, Gloucester kills Henry. Richard kills Henry. Uh, I do like, um, basically, Henry says, just, if you're going to kill me, kill me with your knife, not with your words. Your words aren't even that great, anyway. And then proceeds to murder him with words. And thus I prophesy that many a thousand which now mistrust no parcel of my fear and many an old man's sigh and many a widow's and many an orphan's water standing eye, men for their sons, wives for their husbands and orphans for their parents' timeless death shall rue the hour that ever thou wast born. The owl shrieked at thy birth, an evil sign. The night crow cried, aboding luckless time. Dogs howled and hideous tempers shook down trees. The raven rooked her on the chimney's top and chattering pies and dismal discords sung. Thy mother felt more than a mother's pain and yet brought forth less than a mother's hope to wit an indigested and deformed lump, not like the fruit of such a goodly tree. Teeth hadst thou in thy head when thou wast born to signify thou carnest to bite the world. And if the rest be true, which I have heard, thou camest. I'll hear no more. Perfect in thy speech. And it's just like, damn, Henry, that was savagery. Uh, to be fair, Richard gives it straight back, though, and s- keeps stabbing him after he's dead. So I've got here King Henry V, A, and much more slaughter after this. God forgive my sins and pardon me, dies. Partway through Gloucester's next monologue, he stabs him again. If any spark of life be yet remaining, down, down to hell and say, I sent thee here. Yeah. Stabs and then again. he's like, no, no, it's true what Henry said. I, I was born with teeth and my legs forward and people say I bit like a dog. <laughs> so it's, it's always like, yeah, yeah, I, I've heard the stories. I am a monster and I have no problem with that. Yes, indeed. Tis true that Henry told me of. For I have often heard my mother say I came into the world with my legs forward. Had I not reason, think ye, to make haste to seek their ruin that usurped our right? The midwife wondered and the women cried, Oh, Jesus, bless us, he is born with teeth. And so I was, which plainly signified that I should snarl and bite and play the dog. It all comes down to the end where it's like King Henry and his prince son are gone. Clarence, thy turn is next, and then the rest. Canning myself, but bad till I be best. Like, that's awesome. I'll, <laughs> I'll throw I'm thy so body bad. in another room and triumph Henry in thy day of doom. I'll be so bad, I'll be good. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's just, I'll, I'll keep being bad until I'm king. I, 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 do, I do imagine counting myself, but bad till I be best as the tagline on a Despicable Me movie. <laughs> Ooh, go and see the latest one. It was amazing. I I care that those are apparently surprisingly good. I may as well see them. They they are a lot of fun. Um, The Rise of Gru was incredible. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Quite a lot of fun. Uh, A little messy messy in the story, but you you don't watch it for the story. The humor is incredible. So you mean the minions are not just a meme? No, no. They're better if you don't know them as a meme and actually know them as characters in some pretty funny animations. <laughs> Can you actually tell the, the difference between each of the minions? There are, maybe a, like four? there are about five minions that have 
very specific personalities, yeah. The rest of the groups, you know, just a group, but there is five or six, three in particular, but five or six that have their own personalities. I will believe you. No, don't just believe me. Go and see it. Mm, I will believe you. Why would you not want to see a Kung Fu training montage with three little yellow fellas? Act 5, scene 5. Act 5, scene 5. I think Act 5, scene 7. 7. Act 5, scene 7. We're closer. Yes, we are at the the final scene. On England's royal throne. Yes, Edward is now king. Once more, we sit in England's royal throne, repurchased with the blood of enemies. And all is good. We have Gloucester turning to the audience and saying, uh, so and I, so he's saying to the, to the king, and that I love the tree from whence thou sprangs, witness the loving kiss I give the fruit. And then he says, to say the truth, so Judas kissed his master and cried all hail, when as he meant all harm. So he's basically saying, ah, get ready for the sequel, sirs. Yep. It's like a Marvel post credit scene. And that was Henry VI, Part 3. Well... Let us go through the group and just mention, as we usually do, the first round. Something that we did not like about this play. Something that we didn't like about this play. So I'll start with you, Greg. All right. So, yeah, there was the scene that I didn't like as a piece of theatre. But I think overall, the thing I most didn't like about this play is... Because it was based on history, you just moved back and forth between who was winning a lot. And in terms of telling a good story instead of just repeating history, I'd, you know, cut a lot of that flipping back and forth and maybe delve into more of the characters. Um, Yeah, I, I don't have anything terrible I hate about this play. This is one of those ones where I don't have something I want to scream and pull my hair out about. So that's about the worst I can say. Sophie, what you did not like. Again, before I answer that, I'm just going to let this fucking obnoxious biker leave my neighborhood. (sighs) Okay, so what did I not like about the play? Actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I didn't like about the play. I Probably just the, again, the ridiculously large cast that I struggled to keep up with because they're like the Duke of Gloucester, they're the, they're the Earl of Somerset, and they have no personality. So they're just like flags with names going, hi, this is what I stand for. This is who I'm supporting. Yay! Um, but, you know, that's, again... As Greg has said, it's just an unfortunate byproduct of being a history play. There are a lot of people involved and not enough of them are given enough time or characterization to make them worth even remotely interesting or memorable. 
Um, there were a lot of short scenes. Like, why did you need them? Like, just fucking give us the – don't even give us the short scenes if they are very strictly unnecessary, like Warwick going, hey, George, you're back. Yeah, I'm back. Let's go fight. Let's go fight. And they go fight. It's, it's, so, it's so dumb. Just give us a longer King Edward as being captured or – Queen Elizabeth did not need a whole scene to herself going, oh no, our king is captured. I will go to sanctuary so I don't get killed. It's well, That was annoying. And what I did not like about this, it, it was just how easily Edward bounced back. Again, it's one of those things where, yes, the history is one way, and the art of the historical novelist is to present you all the reasons why this seemingly random thing happened. To make it seem like, oh, well, yes, it may be irrational, but I can see why it happened. And at least according to the comments in my, uh, the annotations in my edition, there was a reason why he, the archbishop, didn't particularly keep him under close lock and key. And I assume there was a relatively decent reason or a relatively understandable reason why the mayor of York just let Edward back into the city. I'd say that this play could have done to have just maybe a few more lines explaining why that happened or to give some level of reasoning for that. So yes, there's certain parts where I felt that Shakespeare did not put in the contextualization that makes the random fluctuations of history make sense. And now for the things that we liked about this play, Greg. Margaret. Just Margaret. Whenever she's on stage, it's almost every time it's amazing. Um, Margaret being so cruel to York with the bloody napkin and the paper crown. Margaret brilliant speech to rile up the army is just everything about her. Her, her, her telling you know Clarence and Richard to kill her just yeah badass character always the play just goes up a level in brilliance whenever she's on stage yeah that that that's my love <laughs> Sophie uh seconded Margaret is queen literally and figuratively and uh, I adore her. And actually, I also adored um, Henry in in his pensive moods. Because, you know, him going, oh, I'm, this is so sad. This is so awful. This is, if only I was, wasn't king. And just, you know, being a pacifist all the whole, throughout the whole thing. And then at the final moment, he just absolutely murders Richard, figuratively, with his words. And it's like, yes, yes, our boy is not a coward. He was just a saint all along. He was a good boy. Anyway, what I liked about this was, and just despite Greg, I shall say the tableau of the father and the son. I... That's right. We, we, both, we both have our feelings for the exact same reason, so I'm okay yeah. with it. I... When it comes, I just adore stagey things. One of the reasons why I like 
revolutionary girl lieutenant, which is what I reference that reminded me of, is that they will just do things that quite literally just make it seem like a stage show happening. That they just have this tableau coming onto the background explaining the themes of what's going on. I do like that. Let's be more obvious in plays these days. That was Henry the Sixth, Part Three, and that was Episode Eight of Shakespeare and Pals. And no, next no, time, Shakespeare play by play. Yes, now yes, we lost that title. We lost the title Shakespeare play by play because oh, I, th- the... I thought we got to keep it. But well, in the five months, it. in the five months I was sitting on these episodes, I lost Shakespeare play by play because a few weeks. Before I published the first episode, someone took Shakespeare play-by-play. I thought it was the other way around. There you go. We have Shakespeare and Powell. I had to go through editing out every occurrence of that name in the previous episodes. We have next month, The Rape of Lucrece. The Rape of Lucrece, another one of Shakespeare's narrative poems. Trigger warning, obviously. Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Powell. A list of references to the works cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.